Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Laura Lippman at Thompson County Park, Dakota Lodge. Laura Lippman is author of the chart-topping Tess Monahan series. Plucky, resourceful, Baltimore private eye, Tess Monahan is a consistent New York Times bestseller, and the dozen installments so far have garnered Lippman an international following. She has also published 10 standalone books, including the acclaimed Every Secret Thing in 2004, and After I'm Gone in 2014, and an intertwined anthology called Hardly Newer in 2006. Lippmann's mysteries have won her a staggering number of industry awards, including the Seamus Award, Edgar Award, and seven Anthony Awards. Her latest departure from Tess Monahan, Sunburn, is a psychological thriller about a pair of lovers with dark secrets and darker intentions. In a starred review, Booklist lauds Sunburn as an homage to classic noir, showcasing a writer at the height of her powers. Library Journal concurs, promising it will delight old movie lovers and reward Littman's legion of fans. It hit shelves in late February. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I feel very Blessed to have arrived in St. Paul on what apparently is like the nicest day of the year so far. <laughs> I mean, even I could tell. I was like, oh, this is pretty great. I, I had my hat, and my gloves, and I was so, and I, I was walking around downtown, and you know, people were like in windbreakers. <laughs> I, I think I saw one guy in shorts. <laughs> so um, I'm here tonight to talk about sunburn in particular, but the writing life in general. I will ha take questions at the end, and I really hope you'll have questions. I like to answer them. And I was a reporter for a long time, and when you're a reporter, they tell you that there are no stupid questions. And you might think, oh, that's just something nice they say to reporters. But as a reporter, I was someone who, at one point in my career, I interviewed a lot of writers. And I remember one of the first writers I was sent to interview was the New York writer Fran Lebowitz. I don't know, most people now know her as one the judge on Law and Order. But she was a very brilliant, acerbic, witty writer, and I was terrified of her. And I remember going to meet with her and sitting down and saying, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions that you've been asked before, and I apologize for that. And she's like, no, no, don't apologize for that. You haven't asked me the questions before. 
So why not ask them? And I really felt that was an amazing thing to say to a young reporter, to give me the license to ask whatever questions I needed to ask. But I also thought it was just good advice in general. It's fine to ask me questions that I've been asked before. You know, don't feel, and I love to answer questions. And I often find that's the most interesting part because people surprise me to this day. Um, I've been publishing since 1997, and I tend to be very much in this loop of going full circle. Well, in 1996, I came to St. Paul, where the hotel I'm staying right now, the Intercontinental, although it was a different hotel then, was home of BoucherCon, which is the name given to the World Mystery Conference. It's a conference put on by fans who volunteer. It was named for Anthony Boucher, which was the pseudonym used by a New York Times critic who took mysteries pretty seriously. And BoucherCon has now been around for, I should know this, I think it's almost 40 years, but not quite. And it moves from city to city. And at the time, I hadn't even published a book yet. And I was in my first marriage. I'm on number two and planning on sticking. But um, so I had an odd first marriage. Like if your first marriage ends, it probably was odd, right? And we traveled everywhere with our dogs. We had a Springer Spaniel and a retired racing Greyhound. So we became expert at driving great distances with our dog. And I'm gonna just tell this story because there are not many places where I get to tell the story of my trip to St. Paul in 1996. Um, in 1996, the Orioles and the Yankees were in the first round of playoffs in the American League. I'm a Baltimorean. I am lifelong, not quite lifelong, but I'd been an Orioles fan since my family moved to the city in 1995. And here's like the first sign that my marriage wasn't going to work out. Um, I married a Yankee fan. <laughs> and I mean, I married an intense Yankee fan. I married one of the most intense, insane Yankee fans that ever was. So the morning we got up in Baltimore to begin our drive to the Midwest, and we weren't crazy enough to drive to Minneapolis, St. Paul in one day, but we could have, trust me on that. We would leave at four in the morning, and our goal was to get as far as Springfield, Illinois, so that my husband could tour the Abraham Lincoln sites the next day, but we had to be there before that game started, before that Oriole-Yankee game started that afternoon, and it turned out we couldn't get it on CBS radio. So my husband was like, we've got to make good time. We've got to make good time. And we had these two dogs in the back seat. And the Springer Spaniel was a very nervous traveler. The Greyhound was just like an enormous cat who slept wherever you put her. And my husband's driving about 80 miles an hour. We've left at 4 in the morning. And we've made Wheeling, Virginia at about 7 in the morning. And all of a sudden, there's just, just this terrible, terrible smell in the car. And my husband had given the Springer Spaniel some Valium, which had relaxed him in a way that was way too relaxed. And sort of my dog's rear end had kind of exploded in the back of this rental car in Wheeling, West Virginia at 7 in the morning. I'm trying to be delicate about this story. It's hard. And so we have to, like, try to clean the car out and wheeling. And then it was like, you know, driving on to Springfield. And the next day, we arrived in St. Paul. 
And you know, I hadn't even published a book at the time. And I remember, I'll just tell one more story from 1996 in St. Paul. So I'm being published by a publisher that would later be subsumed. I'm being published by Hearst Books. And they have Morrow Books and Avon Books. And later they'll be purchased by HarperCollins. And my editor says, oh, you should come to dinner with us. And she said, I want you to meet this guy. He's, he's just published his first book, too. And he's pretty good. And I think y'all would hit it off and enjoy each other. And so in 1996, at a restaurant in St. Paul, I couldn't begin to tell you the name, I met this kid named Dennis Lahane. I don't know what ever happened to him. <laughs> what, no, anyway. So I have these really, really fond memories of St. Paul. And I'm in this moment of sort of cycling through what is surprisingly to me a 21-year career at this point. I published my first book in 1997. So I have now officially been a novelist longer than I was a journalist. And I still find that kind of shocking. And I still try to remember every day to be profoundly grateful for that. Because that was what I wanted. That was the dream, to be able to do this full time. So I never take it for granted. And I am always so happy to be in a room full of readers, because you're my bosses. I work for you. And when I go on the road, I feel like I'm a traveling salesman who has a home office in every city I go to. And I want to know how the bosses think I'm doing. So y'all are really in charge of this event. And one of the things I've found out about my bosses over the years is one of the questions that writers are asked the most often. And some people will tell you never, never, never to ask a writer this question. But the question that comes up again and again is, well, where did that idea come from? I think that's a great question. I think that's an understandable question. I think it should be asked. And I suppose there's some writers who don't wish to be asked it for some sort of, I don't know, kind of woo-woo thing. Like if they tell you, it's like a magician. They can't tell you how they do their tricks. They don't want you to know how it works. But I take ideas seriously but pragmatically. It's my job. I mean, I'm guessing everybody in this room either has a job or had a job. And there's certain things you're supposed to do. Like, for example, if you're a librarian and you show up at the library and your job is to shelve the books, you don't sit there staring into your coffee until you feel really inspired to shelve the books. <laughs> like, can you imagine saying to your boss, I, I just, I'm not feeling it. I just don't have it yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe tomorrow off. No, no, it's, you, you have a job and you do it. And I know we're supposed to romanticize this job of writing. And there are certainly are moments of being a, in a creative field where one does feel sort of this magical serendipity. But it's still your job to show up and put the words on the paper and to have ideas. And I've always been very down to earth about it to the point where there's almost not a book I've written where I couldn't tell you almost to the moment where I had the idea. I, look, I, I'm, this is not a rhetorical question. I'm not being silly. Are there people in this room who have actually read me before? OK. So for example, if you wanted to throw out the name of one of my novels, I bet I could tell you where the idea came from. Anyone want to try it? OK. Wild Lake. OK, I know exactly. So in 2013, 
Wildlife was published in 2016. But in 2013, Dylan Farrow, the daughter of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, wrote a piece for the New York Times. It was not published in the newspaper, but it was published digitally. And she asserted, not for the first time, I was sexually assaulted by my father. And she said, I know I was a child at the time. I know people believe this and this and this about it. I am telling you, this happened to me. This is my truth. I am not my mother's puppet. I was not manipulated. I have a clear memory of this. This is what happened to me. And I read this column, and I was very moved by it. And I said to my husband, you know what? Going forward from this day, when a person tells me I'm a victim of sexual assault, I am going to start from a point of belief. I am not a journalist anymore. I am not a police officer. I am not a prosecutor. I am not a judge. I'm not on a jury. I'm just a person in the world. And I think I would benefit from believing people who make this assertion. And if on occasion I am wrong to have placed my belief in these people, I don't think I will be harmed by that. I think in a way what I was arguing was that cynicism is not an intellectually superior position. You're not a better person for being a cynic. And sure enough, you know, I, when the young woman came forward in the UVA case, I started from a place of belief. When her claims were disproven, I said, it's a shame that this has happened. There was really no one harmed in that she made up, I mean, the fraternity, but there were no individuals. There was no one that she slandered or libeled. I think the dean at the school sued. So I said, okay, this is how I feel now. This is how I'm gonna live my life. And I was thinking about different cases and like, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? And then I said, wait a minute, if you expand this so-called believe the victim mentality to famous works of literature, what do I do with To Kill a Mockingbird? How do we understand the events of To Kill a Mockingbird through the scrim of what we now call rape culture? Now, no doubt, Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird is innocent. That's the whole point of the story, that this amazing amount of evidence, the fact that he has a withered left arm and he couldn't have possibly have hit the victim. It, it's, it's so clear that he's innocent and that's what's tragic about the story is that a man in the American, and that a man in America in the 1930s, and I don't say the American South, in America in the 1930s, a black man is not going to be believed. That's the point of the book. So I was like, okay, wait a minute though. What if we bring it forward? I said, if we bring it all the way forward to 2014 to 2015, I think it's tilted the other way. And we now have an understanding of what we call rape culture and that she would at least have some people who believed her. And I said, no, I need to find a time and a place in American history where people believe themselves to be progressive on issues of race and feminism, but maybe they're not as progressive as they think. So I placed that story in the late 1970s in Columbia, Maryland, the suburb where I went to school, a suburb that thought itself 
to be a utopian community. And it was made up of good people. But as a writer, I'm so much more interested in good people making mistakes than I am in bad people doing bad things. Bad people, anyway. So there you go, you can see, it's very detailed. You know, you ask me a question, I could probably do this. I've published 22, you know, individual stories. It's 21 novels, one novella, a book of short stories. And I would say that for 20 of the 21 novels, I can do this. Time and time again, I can tell you these really precise stories. And then we come to Sunburn, and I don't have a clue. <laughs> Where did Sunburn come from? I mean, I have sincerely launched my own sort of forensic investigation into when did I get the idea for Sunburn? I know what the idea is. I know on the one hand, I was really interested in the work of James Cain, had been since I was 21 years old. And my sister gave me six James Cain paperbacks for Christmas, and I read them all very quickly at a time when I had very little time to read, because I was a senior in college. And I loved James Cain, and when I started writing my own fiction in the 1990s, I thought I was gonna be James Cain. And I wasn't. My voice was different. It wasn't hard-boiled, it wasn't dark, it wasn't cynical. I had a much more positive view of the world. It's a, a rueful optimism about human potential. And I'd so wanted to be James Cain. There are all these parallels. He was born in Baltimore, I was from Baltimore. He had worked at the Baltimore Sun. He had been a protege of H.L. Mencken, a writer that my father had made a study of and published a book about. And yet I wasn't James Cain when I started writing and I sort of accepted that. I accepted my voice was in this range. I'm not gonna be James Cain, but boy, I love James Cain. So certainly at some point I have the idea of, what if you take Postman Always Rings Twice, the setup of a stranger passing through town, but the stranger's a woman. So at some point I clearly have that idea. In November of 2015, I know that I went to New Orleans. I taught in something called Mystery Writers of America University, a day-long craft talk. And I used the Postman Always Rings twice, and I had these index cards, and I, I got in touch with my friends who were with me that day, and I said, was I talking about writing my own Postman? One person said yes, the other person said I don't remember. So that idea is in the air. The other idea that had been in my head for a long time was about a novel that's not the least bit noir, quite the opposite. It's a novel that was published in 1995, the year that Sunburn happens to take place. And it's also by a famous Baltimore writer, probably the Baltimore writer. It's a book called Ladder of Years by Ann Tyler. Anyone here read it or remember it? Let me tell you, women love this book because it's about a woman who gets so disgusted with her family on a beach vacation that she just walks away from them. It's like, I'm done with you. And it's an Ann Tyler novel. It's humane, compassionate, brilliant, perfect. Delia, the mother who walks away from her family, 
She's a somewhat unformed person. She's acting on impulse and she will find a sense of purpose as she leaves her family and reinvents her life in a small inland town far away from the, well, nothing in Delaware is really that far away, but about 30 miles from the coastal town where she abandoned her family. I've always thought that idea was really dark, too. I mean, I, you're not going to improve upon the Ann Tyler version of Ann Tyler's idea. But I would think about that. It was like a woman abandoned her family. There's a, a Steve Earle song. I'll get the title wrong if I try for it. I want to say it's the week or the two weeks of living dangerously. And it begins with a reference to a man throwing the baby seat, the car seat in a dumpster <laughs> and just heading out. And I always thought, yeah, I don't even think a guy would bother to take the dumpster out. That's a female move. <laughs> Toss the dumpster and go, make sure. And I, I was really interested in those two ideas and bringing them together. Now, the book is set in 1995. A woman has stopped in a small Delaware town inland, and a man is looking at her, is intrigued by her. There are so many spoilers in the plot of Sunburn that it's very hard to talk about past chapter two. But what I would tell you is that if you pick up this book and you're reading about Adam looking at Polly in chapter one, and then Polly flirting with Adam in chapter two. There are many, many spoilers to come. But if you're someone who picks up this book and does not immediately realize that Polly and Adam will eventually end up in bed together, I beg you to assign power of attorney to someone in your family. <laughs> and, and maybe don't try to drive home tonight. I'm not sure you should be handling heavy machinery. The one thing that's clear from the first page of this book is that these two people are going to become lovers. But he has secrets, she has secrets. He's lying to her somewhat, she's lying to them. They try to avoid lying. They try to sort of just, you know, say as little as possible so they won't have to tell that many lies. And so it's a very hard book to talk about past that second chapter. I've pretty much told you everything I can about it. Why is it set in 1995? And I know some people will say, oh, well, it's set in 1995 because you're a lazy writer and you didn't want to deal with cell phones and Google and texting and this whole world of information that's at our fingertips. Now, all of that was an incredible, wonderful benefit of setting it in 1995. The reason the book is set in 1995, and I have to be so guarded here, it's so hard to talk about because again, it's a major spoiler. So what I will tell you is that back in the 1990s, there was a very new concept in criminal justice that asked people to reconsider the way that we saw one certain class of perpetrator. That this one class of perpetrator that had been seen as just straight up criminals, maybe their crimes should be viewed through a different window, if you will, that there were mitigating factors and maybe these perpetrators 
should be seen as victims. That's about as far as I can go. This was a very new idea in the 1990s. It's old hat by now. Like now it's so accepted. Again, I run into this idea of it wouldn't work today. This one big secret in somebody's past wouldn't be as stunning and shocking in 2018 as it was in 1995. But yeah, it was so much fun to write a book where nobody had a smartphone. <laughs> to remember a time when you couldn't constantly be telling people, be there in 10 minutes, running 15 minutes late, I'll meet you there. That's so central to the book. But it was, again, not a plan. It was a byproduct. It was an organic result of needing the book to take place when it does. Writing the book, I'd like to call 1995, the last good year to disappear. And still, I look back and I think, where did the idea really come from? I mean, again, I can't name another book where I just can't tell you the story like that. Why is this story so out of reach for me? Why can't I pinpoint that moment in time that I decided I'm going to write this book? It's going to be very much unlike any book I've ever written. My hope with this book was to make it super short. And by my definition, I was trying to bring it in at 70,000 words. I think I ended up at 78,000 words. All my other books run from 90,000 to 110,000 words. Anybody know how many words the original Postman Always Rings Twice was? Want to take a guess? Under 40,000. It's a short book. I mean, you can't. The market won't tolerate that kind of hardcover novel right now. You try to publish a 40,000-word book, people go to the bookstore and they're like, I got ripped off. I'm not going to pay $23.95 for 40. People would be outraged. So you don't see books that short anymore. But I, it was going to be a tight book. It was going to be a, a laconic, hard-boiled book. It was going to have all of that cynicism I so often lack. And I started writing it early in 2016. And by July 2016, I was about as stuck as I've ever been. I was so stuck. I knew everything that was supposed to be happening in my book, but I couldn't make it happen. And as it turns out, I had to go to England to tour for the book I had published, Wild Lake. And I was meeting with one of my best friends, a former crime writer who now writes what are called bonkbusters. If that term, we would call them sex and shopping novels. So my friend Lauren Henderson, under the name Rebecca Chance, writes these divine bonkbusters. They're really good. I mean, like she can write a 10-page sex scene, literally. And that is like, I can't, that's one of the hardest things to do. I mean, just the geometry alone will. Um, but I was sitting in her garden, and we talk a lot about our work through the magic of the internet. And I'm not being ironic. I actually consider it kind of magical. This is someone I'm in touch with almost every day, a friend who lives in London. And I can talk to, talk to her every day because of Facebook and Twitter and email. And I talked to her about the book. And I laid out the plot. And it wasn't that she thought anything in the plot should change. But she thought I didn't really understand my own characters. I didn't understand their motivations. You know, I sort of had the, the math right, but something was off. And she said to me, problem is you're not trying to write a Laura Lippmann novel. You're trying to write somebody else's novel. This doesn't make sense for you. Make your novel a Laura Lippmann novel. 
I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, I don't even know what that means. But, you know, we'd come through, and we're still in to some extent, this incredible boomlet in crime fiction that involves a lot of really unreliable narrators. That involves, you know, Gone Girl, the girl on the train, the woman in the window, um, the wife, a divine book by my friend Alifair Burke. But it, they, these books, what they have in common is that we can't quite trust the people who are telling us the story. The unreliable narrator. And I realized that in writing about Polly, if that is indeed her name, I was writing about a truly reliable narrator. She tries to lie as little as possible. She keeps certain secrets because she knows that people will not respond well to them, but she does not wish to lie. And she's very clear on the facts of everything. She's, she's not confused. She's not trying to fool anyone, including herself. In the second chapter, before we get to the spoilers, when she begins talking to this attractive man in a bar, before they've exchanged names, she makes a joke about her wallet. And she thinks, pay attention. I haven't even told you my name yet, but I've told you what I care about, which is money. Now, I came into this field over 20 years ago as a crime writer, and I've never wanted to be anything but a crime writer. In some reviews that I've had, really lovely reviews where people clearly meant to flatter me, sometimes it has been said, well, Laura Lippmann transcends the crime genre. I don't even understand that because I don't see how I'm going to levitate above a plane that includes Raymond Chandler, Agatha Christie, who doesn't get anywhere near as much credit as she should get for her genius, number three best-selling writer of all time, behind the Bible and Shakespeare, Agatha Christie. Yep. James Crumley, Kate Atkinson, who's that rare literary writer who's come into crime fiction and has, in fact, shown that a writer coming from a slightly different discipline can do amazing unusual things. No one can write a Kate Atkinson book, but Kate Atkinson and the Jackson Brody novels are absolute masterpieces. But I don't believe in this concept of transcending the genre. If we want to look at literature as it is now, I see it as a map of different continents and countries or territories, whatever you wish to use. And there's some really fuzzy boundaries. There are places where crime in literature, whatever that is, overlap. There are places where the historical novel and literature overlap. As much as it pains literature to hear this said, there are places where the romance novel and literature overlap. I mean, I think the one thing we can agree on is the most interesting work is being done in these borderlands where we're a little bit unsure of whose property we're on. But one thing we're kind of sure of is which direction people came from. I'm a crime novelist. I'll always be a crime novelist. You look at someone like Richard Price, Richard Price definitely starts in sort of mainstream literary fiction, but he migrates closer and closer to crime with every book he writes. Um, you can play that game with several writers. So 
I'm, I'm a crime writer. That's what I was born to be. And I don't believe in this idea that I can transcend the genre. I'm, this is the one thing I know about my genre is it can accommodate everyone. It doesn't keep anyone from writing a masterpiece. Be very clear. I'm not saying that I'm writing masterpieces. I won't make that case for myself. But I will make the case for my genre that there are people in it who are writing masterpieces. Nick Hornby, the British writer who wrote High Fidelity, Juliet Naked, many other books, probably said it best when he was writing about the book Mystic River by that young fella I met here in a restaurant in St. Paul, 1996. What Hornby said about Mystic River is that he said, you know, I think the thing that keeps people from understanding how good some crime fiction can be is that they don't show their work. He's like, you know how in math class, the student is you know, told in some classes to show their work. It's not enough to have the right answer. You have to show your work. He said, the best crime writers don't show their work. But what do they do? They do everything you would ask a literary novel to do. And on top of it, they write a crime novel. And Hornby then went on to say, that's you know, like getting angels to dance on a pen. Raymond Chandler, who's probably to this day one of the best known practitioners of the crime form, particularly the private eye novel, wrote a very famous essay called The Simple Art of Murder. And in it he said, the difference between the crime novel and the literary novel is that the mediocre literary novel is never published. Maybe things were very different when Chandler was writing. <laughs> I read mediocre literary novels all the time. But I think the point he was making is that, and I think this is why we still have this debate about genre versus mainstream literary fiction, a genre novel can be somewhat successful just for ticking all the boxes that we expect a genre. Did it hold my attention? Did it satisfy my expectations of its particular genre? If so, it's OK. It's fine. Whereas a literary novel that doesn't achieve at a high level is pretty much a fallen souffle. But you know, even a fallen souffle is not that bad. You can kind of like fry it up and eat it like, you know, eat it like an omelet. And you know, I, I say all of this just to say it's 21 years now. I'm working on my 24th book. And my editor asked me the other day, it's like, do you ever want to not be a crime writer? And I'm like, no, no, I, I like to kill people in my books. <laughs> it's made me a lot healthier. And she's like, no, but do you need to be talked about differently? And it's like, I really don't. I really love the crime genre. And I've never seen anything in it that made me feel as if I was, you know, chafing or like, like, like oh, I'm so much bigger than this. No, quite the opposite. It seems vast and capable of holding everything that I've ever wanted to do. And yet I circle back again and again, where did sunburn come from? And I think the reason I can't pinpoint that moment is because sunburn has been inside my head on some level since 1981. 
I was here, I graduated from college. And as I told you, when I was in college, my sister gave me these six James Cain paperbacks, and I tore through them despite having no time for recreational reading. But college was coming to an end, and I needed a job. And I needed a job in journalism. And I set my sights on getting a job at a newspaper in New England. So sure enough, the newspaper in Waco, Texas was very interested in me. <laughs> and they said, you have you know, the right clips. We have good recommendations on you. We think we'd like to hire you, but there's a problem. We don't hire without a personal interview, and we don't pay for people to come to personal interviews. So on a cold May Wednesday in Chicago, I got on a Greyhound bus. It took 26 hours to get from Chicago to Waco. And this was not fixer upper Waco. No, 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 no. This was a very different Waco, Texas. I was terrified to leave my room at the Waco Inn. I huddled there all night. The next morning when the sun was up, I walked over to the newspaper. I did four hours of interviews. They offered me a job. I said, thank you very much. I'll have to think about it. Went back to the bus station. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was in Waco for maybe one third of the time I was on the bus. But on that bus, I was reading the last of my six James Cain novels, a book called Love's Lovely Counterfeit. And there's a Polaroid photograph somewhere in my files that a young soldier took of me. And you can see me lying there on the bus my head tilted against the seat, that book in my skirt. And I feel as if I've been living and dreaming of this book since 1981. And just finally, everything came together and I was ready to write it. And it's had a very happy life. It's only, it only came out three weeks ago. It feels like about nine years ago. I mean, it's, um, books have about the shelf life of yogurt. So you're catching up with me right at the end of my expiration date. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Laura Lippman and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what the process is like for adapting Littman's novels into audiobooks. I've had the good luck of having amazing actors read my books. Susan Bennett, who read Sunburn, I didn't realize this. I like went to the studios in New York and I met with Susan Bennett and she had she'd asked me questions about how to pronounce certain things. I had a lovely meeting with her. Later, I looked her up on Facebook and it turns out she's the voice of Siri on your smartphone. <laughs> so Susan has like 1.6 million followers because she's Siri. You know, it's like anything in any business which the extent to which things will be done right depends on a few people. And I've been lucky to have readers who reach out to me and ask me questions because you can't predict the questions. Like, I wouldn't begin to be able to know, anticipate what someone's not going to know about one of my books. So if the reader or someone arranging the audiobook 
doesn't reach out to the writer, you know, I, I, you're just kind of stuck. You're, you're sort of really dependent on communication. So I keep open, I have very open lines of communication with the person reading my audiobook. I'm there for any question they have for me. And the same is true with translation questions. You know, some translation questions are pretty, I, I, I wish I could remember, I don't have a great memory. I had a series of questions from the Portuguese publisher for Sunburn. I also had, I told you about my friend, Lauren Rebecca. Uh, she wrote a series of terrific crime novels about a young sculptor in London named Sam Jones, who's sort of the post-punk Miss Marple. And at one point, her German publisher swore up and down that there was no German word for cervix. <laughs> I, I doubt that. But it's, it's, a, it's like, you know, there are a lot of things you don't control. Um, I don't, in the end, really control my cover. I'm shown covers. They would like me to approve covers. But there's that. And, and the same with titles. I mean, you can control it, but you have to sort of see the whole thing as a negotiation of, are you going to die on that hill? When I wrote Sunburn, it was my absolute intent that the book was going to be called Adam and Eve Whiskey Down. How many people even know what that means? It is diner slang for poached eggs on rye toast. It is essential to the book. It is actually a code used between the two characters, Adam and Polly. Like when Polly wants a certain thing from Adam, she writes, Adam and Eve, whiskey down on a green receipt, because you know, they're trying to keep their relationship a secret. I designed the book cover. Like I got a green, I like, I was, and my publisher was really, really unenthusiastic about it. And at a certain, and they're, they're so polite, they're so sweet. I've been with the same editor my entire career, which is rare. So it comes to this moment of, am I gonna die on this hill? Am I going to be Ramona Quimby and throw myself on the floor and make, a, I love people who know my Ramona Quimby references, and make a big noisy fuss about this must be my title. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to have this fight. I want the sales force to be enthusiastic about my book, so I'm going to apply this psychological principle called opposite, which is if you've been doing something a certain way and having no success, why don't you do it completely opposite? I'm like, so I've got this wordy title that's essential to the novel and can't really be understood unless you read the novel. Hmm, maybe that is kind of backwards. So I'm going to go with a short title that feels generic and yet specific at the same time. I opened up my own book. First line was, it's the sunburned shoulders that get him. I said, what if we call this book Sunburn? And, and really, it was so, I mean, this, the, the illust this point of the story is that that's about three weeks out of my life. So now you come to the audio version of the book. I don't have six weeks out of my life to sit there and reread my book and try to second guess everything an audio version will get wrong. I have to hope that they'll ask me questions. One linguistic thing that comes up again and again in writing about Baltimore cops is that Baltimore cops of a certain generation say, I am a police, or I am a murder police. It's dying out. It's not as prevalent as it was. I probably get asked that question six times a year via email. So I mean, it's at a certain point, 
perfectionism be damned, you're just not gonna get everything right because you have to be asked the question to get it right. So unless I'm gonna go sit in a studio in New York for four days, which is impractical for all sorts of reasons, I'm not gonna be there when, I'm trying to think of something in Baltimore that everybody mispronounces or would get backwards. What? Reisterstown, yeah. Um, but, you know, I felt Susan Bennett, who read my audio, I mean, I've had good experiences. I don't listen to my own audiobooks because it's weird. I listen to the first three lines. I'm like, that's a nice voice, that's all I can take. Um, I don't need any more voices in my head. So, so it's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in this business. And I, I am not a perfectionist. I've struggled mightily to be more detail-oriented than I am. I read my book aloud, cover to cover, word by word, twice during the process. I read my book aloud during copy edits. I read it aloud during galleys. It takes at least 10 days, because you can really only read about 30 pages a day out loud. It's fantastic. My books are more polished than they've ever been. There are fewer errors than they've ever been. I've ye I have yet to produce a book that doesn't have an error of my making. Should someone else have caught it? Maybe. But it's, it's pretty hard. So that's the best answer I have to that. This question comes from an audience member asking when Laura Littman realized she wanted to pursue a career in writing. My dad was a journalist. I'm the youngest of two. And I have a terrible speech impediment when I'm a kid. When I am three years old, I cannot pronounce the letter S or the letter U. This is especially bad when your older sister is named Susan. <laughs> I talk almost entirely through my nose. My mother takes me to the pediatrician and the pediatrician says, and my sister claims she can understand everything I'm saying. I'm dubious about this, but that was your claim. My mother takes me to the pediatrician right before I start nursery school. She's like, we can't understand a word she's saying. Pediatrician says, she and her older sister have this weird secret language. Take her to school. She'll talk like that. The other kids will make fun of her. She'll snap out of it. He was right about the making fun of part. <laughs> the snapping out of it, not so much. And I had to go to a speech therapist for about six months to a year to learn how to breathe correctly and say these letters. And my theory has always been that a lot of stuff just got backed up. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, you know, I, I lived, you know, I was the daughter of a writer. Um, I, read, I started reading at a pretty young age. As a child, I don't have that story. I actually have that story as a young adult. And again, it takes place on a bus. I don't know what it was with me with buses. In the 1980s in Texas, my car was broken, and I had to take a bus from Waco to San Antonio to see the guy I was dating. And I, I sat down on the bus and I opened this book. It it's, was All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers by Larry McMurtry. It has a very simple opening line, something like, I think I fell in love with Sally the first time I saw her wake up, either in that moment or several minutes later. It's, it's very, and I just thought, oh, this is going to be a great book. I can just tell. As simple as that opening line is, I can tell this is going to be a great book and I'm going to love it. And one day, I want to make somebody feel exactly the way I feel right now. 
if I could just know that one person in the world ever opened a book I wrote and looked at the first line and was excited to read it, that would be all I could ever ask for. So that's really kind of that. I mean, I was trying to write my whole life and failing at it so often. Um, Texas ended up being an incredibly vital and important place to me for so many reasons. And, you know, part of it was I ended up studying with Sandra Cisneros when I was in Texas. And she encouraged me. And then the woman who took over for her when Sandra took a university job and left the workshop hated my work. And having my work hated was as important as having my work loved and made me develop this whole concept of you need mentors, you also need tormentors. <laughs> I, I got as much out of my tormentors as I did out of my mentors. Another audience member asked Littman if writing novels feels more like a job or a passion. It, it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like I've, I'm getting away with the greatest crime in history. I mean, like, to, okay, like, here's today. I mean, yeah, I had to get up at, I, don't know, I had to wake up at 5.30 this morning. I normally wake up at 6, so that's not a big deal. Got up, you know, kind of packed my suitcase. There's a car waiting for me outside to take me to the airport. You know, got on a plane, came to St. Paul, worked on the, on the airplane. And by the time I landed in St. Paul, I had done what I, I, I typically have my daily schedule on a typical day is you're going to write a thousand words, but you're also going to spend at least three hours in the chair. I used to just say a thousand words, but I'm super fast. So it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta have, it's like um, that quadratic equation. It's like X plus Y and X is words and Y is time. And, but by the time I landed, it was almost a three hour flight. By the time I landed, I had done a lot of work because I'm in a revision phase on a section of the novel. And it was like, whoa. So here I am, I mean, no, it's fantastic. And I really do try to be consciously grateful every day. And I have bad days. Yeah, I'm human. I have days where I feel sorry for myself or self-pitying or I have some dream that doesn't come true. But, you know, I'd, I'd have to be a crazy person not to be happy. I'd just be a waste if I weren't happy with the way things turned out. So, yeah, I'm joyful all the time. I'm grateful all the time. Uh, I'm insanely happy to be my own boss. I'm the best boss I've ever had. And I had some good bosses, but no one's nicer to me than I am. Um, the only downside, and it's really why social media is so important, is that it's a really lonely gig. Now, I like a lot of quiet time. I like a lot of alone time. As a woman with a husband and a small child, when my husband takes our daughter to go visit his mother on a Sunday afternoon and I get to sit by myself in our house for four hours, I could literally just sit in a chair for four hours and stare at the wall and be insanely happy. But I don't have colleagues anymore and social media creates that sense of the water cooler, of I do have coworkers I get to check in with on a pretty regular basis. But no, it's, it's the greatest life ever. Um, I, I feel guilty for any moment I'm not insanely happy because I should be insanely happy all the time. And I'm pretty close to that. Pretty close to that. This question asker inquires if Lippman will continue writing her Tess Monahan series. Yes, but not forever. The way my ideas work is I get the idea and I always say to myself, well, is that a Tess idea? And I kind of know right away, but I do kind of, I keep that open. 
and it's gotten very hard to write about Tess because she's a mom now, and I think there's less tolerance for her doing foolhardy things. I have less tolerance for it. I'd really like to write a nice ending for Tess, and I mean literally a happy ending. You know, the irony of being a crime writer with a continuing series is that your character is happiest when you're not around. <laughs> so I feel guilty. I was like, you know, I really like Tess. She's like my imaginary friend. And when I show up, her life's about to get kind of shitty. So, but I would like to write one to three more books about Tess. And I have, I've thought about writing a children's, uh, a chapter books about Tess's daughter. I think it would be very funny if Tessa's daughter became kind of like the modern day Encyclopedia Brown of North Baltimore. Um, the book I'm currently working on, which is set in Maryland in 1966, I tried to make it a book about Tessa's parents, but that wasn't to be. However, Tessa's mother is very much a secondary character in this book. So yeah, Tessa's always on my mind. Um, Several years ago, I mean, 10 years ago, I was approached by the New York Times and wrote what ended up being the last serial novel that the New York Times Magazine ever published. They'd had, Ian Rankin had done it, Michael Connolly had done it. I was the person who killed it. <laughs> um, and the first page of that is framed and it hangs on the wall in my kitchen because the girl in the green raincoat totally paid for the renovation of my kitchen. <laughs> and, you know, so every day, I mean, I'm like, I'm really, Tess is kind of with me all the time. I'm very conscious of her, and I, I adore her, but I want to do right by her, and I want to give her a proper ending, but I feel like the ending is drawing nigh. I don't think she can go on forever. Uh, you know, some series can, I don't think she can. Um, and I think she'll be happier when I leave her alone. Our next question of the evening is about Laura Lippman's writing process. Basically two schools of writers, although I'd say there's a middle ground, and they're generally described as people who outline and pantsers, as in seat of the pants. Um, there are some people, Raymond Carver was one of them, who would say he didn't know anything beyond the first line. I'm in this middle ground where I know the big idea, the big secret. I don't know anything else. I don't know how my characters are going to get there. I don't know what they're going to think. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And as I write, I stop all the time and I like write these notes to myself. Who knows what now? What's going on? What's going to happen? I, you know, and, and I just keep playing with it. I do a lot of drafts. Uh, for someone who writes a book on average, like Sunburn, the draft that I sent to my editor of Sunburn, I worked on for 10 months, maybe 11 months. And in those 11 months, I was able to do five revisions. I am very, very fast, but I use my speed for multiple revisions because my early drafts are so bad, nobody sees them. Like my early drafts are like Medusa bad. They might turn you to stone. Like, you know, you don't want to see them. And it, I have to like rework and rework. I like revision. A lot of writers hate it. I, I think this is part of having been a newspaper writer. You've been a newspaper writer. You've had the experience of someone basically taking your copy and gutting it like a fish. Like, you're just like, <gasps> and then you have to put it back together again. So I, I'm pretty 
I'm pretty fearless in revision. I teach writing. Um, I've been teaching every year at what's known as the Eckerd College Writers in Paradise Conference, which meets for a week in January. And it tends to be older writers, people who are trying this for the first time. And I give my students something that I call a BFN. And I'm sorry, I'm going to curse right now. BFN is a big note. It's like, when you, like, a BFN is like, you're writing this story about a bear, and I think it should be about a ballet dancer. And they're like, they're like what? <laughs> and I always say, no, no, be calm, you know, go take a walk, settle down. It sounds horrible, but the irony, the paradox is that a really big note is actually so much easier than lots of little tiny ones. I got so many little tiny notes on Sunburn, and I felt like I took it back from my editor and I worked on it for two months. And they were tiny, tiny notes. Like, it didn't even take up a page. But I felt like I was doing microscopic surgery. I felt like a hand surgeon. I felt like I had opened up someone's hand and I was looking at these tiny little bones and like trying to fix them and not do too much damage. I'd rather have a huge note any day. And um, so I'm pretty. It's really hard to rattle me in a revision. The only time I've ever gotten really rattled in a revision is when I turned in the book, Every Secret Thing, to my US editor, and it was done. And my UK editor came back to me and said, this is horrible, and this will never work unless you rewrite it as a police procedural. That was like one of the, and it was on Christmas Eve. It was really, yeah, happy Christmas, yeah. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Laura Lemon creates characters that are likable. I am really unconcerned with my characters being likable. I am concerned with my characters being interesting and charismatic. And whenever I worry that my characters are unlikable, I just think about Hannibal Lecter. People love to read about Hannibal Lecter, and he is not really likable. I think I, I I'm so sorry that this conversation about likable characters ever got started because I feel that it's a not very well expressed but well-meaning idea. Like if you're an editor or an agent and you've read somebody's manuscript and it shows promise but it's just not clicking on all cylinders, you want to say something that's helpful and I, I think people are like, well, I, they say I just didn't like the character but what they really mean is they weren't willing to follow that character's story, which is a small but important distinction. So one thing that happened to me that I got kind of lucky in is that when I wrote the first Tess Monaghan novel, I thought she was great, because she's a lot like me. And then I got all this feedback about how unlikable she was. <laughs> and I said to people, you know what? She's a young woman who doesn't have a job. Why would you expect her to be likable? She's grumpy. She's cranky. Give her some time. She'll grow on you. So I don't worry about likable, but relatable is a good word. Relatable is a much better word. And I feel that, that there are two things there. First of all, the characters just need to be fully rounded. And the key thing that I would tell a student in one of my classes is, Character informs plot. Plot does not inform character. Everything is character driven. And the minute you try to shoehorn a character into doing something because it works for the plot is when you run into trouble. 
And when my friend was talking to me in her garden, that's what she was telling me about my own book, is that I was trying to make characters do things that looked great on the page, like, oh, that's so cool, that's so dark. But it didn't make sense because it wasn't who they were. So I would kind of double down on your people, on your characters. And if you love them, and you're kind of like a god, and you're creating them, and you sort of have to love them, even if they're horrible. And I mean, I, I wrote one book called I Know You Anywhere that featured, I don't write a lot about sociopaths because they don't interest me, but I did write one book about a sociopathic killer who had routinely kidnapped girls, raped them, and killed them, and <laughs> yay, I Know You Anywhere. And when I had to write from Walter's point of view, that was a bummer of a day. That was like, I did not like being in Walter's head. I hated it, but I recognized that I had to honor his vision of himself and that Walter on some level had rationalized every horrible thing he ever did. Thank you for coming out tonight. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Laura Lipman. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Ariel Lahan at Hennepin County Library, Golden Valley. Ariel Lahan is a rising star in the realm of historical fiction. Her greatly anticipated 2018 release, I Was Anastasia, follows the life of Anna Anderson, an enigmatic woman who spent half a century battling to be recognized as a lost Russian princess, Anastasia Romanov. It hit shelves in March. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.